You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. At the time of this recording, Black History Month is next week, and I'm partnering with the folks at Knopf Doubleday Publishing Group, a division of Penguin Random House, to bring you the first annual Redacted History Book Club. We're going to be highlighting a Black author and literary masterpiece. Next month, we're going to be reading The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. When Elwood Curtis, a black boy growing up in 1960s Tallahassee, is unfairly sentenced to a juvenile reformatory called the Nickel Academy, he finds himself trapped in a grotesque chamber of horrors. This is based on the real story of a reform school that operated for 111 years and warped the lives of thousands of children. So, we're going to be reading that book together, and the episode for this book club is going to drop Wednesday, February 22nd. We're going to have discussions on Instagram leading up to the episode drop, and there may even be a giveaway for people who participate in the book club. So if you want to get a head start, I have the link to purchase the book in the show notes below. Follow that link, purchase the book, and get reading. It's a very easy read, about 200 pages. I look forward to discussing this book with y'all on February 22nd. We all know what happened to Martin Luther King Jr., on that fateful April evening in Memphis, Tennessee, 1968. At 6.05 p.m., Martin Luther King was standing on the second floor balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, where he and his associates were staying. And this was a motel that he and his associates had frequented. King's last words on the balcony before he was shot were spoken to musician Ben Branch, who was scheduled to perform that night at an event King was attending. He said, Ben, make sure you play Take My Hand, Precious Lord, in the meeting tonight. Play it real pretty. And then... I'm Andre, and this is the Redacted History Podcast. Martin Luther King Jr. was rushed to room one of the St. Joseph's Hospital emergency room. He was unconscious, breathing irregularly, and clinging on for dear life. Surgeons dug into his body and found that the bullet path had done so much damage that if he were to survive, Martin Luther King would have been a quadriplegic. But none of that mattered. He was showing zero signs of life and was declared dead at 7.05 p.m. at the age of 39. Here is an excerpt from his autopsy report. Quote, The entrance wound was through the right mandible, shattering it on entry. The bullet traveled through the right neck and then entered the right supraclavicular fossa. It entered the external jugular vein, vertebral artery, and subclavian artery on the right before it crossed through the right pleural space. It then crossed the midline, transecting the spinal cord at the junction of the cervical and thoracic cord. After passing through the cord, it lodged into the back near the left scapula. 
unquote. One bullet did a lot of damage. In hindsight, there is a slight concern about the hospital that King was brought to. St. Joseph's was the closest hospital to the Lorraine Motel. However, St. Joseph's was a small 400-bed hospital that didn't have extensive resources for trauma victims. John Gaston Hospital, on the other hand, was an experienced trauma hospital and would have taken a few more minutes to get to. It makes you wonder, would MLK have survived? But this is not a conspiracy theory episode because the chances of survival would have still been a very low chance since we are dealing with artery and spinal cord damage. But let's rewind. Why was Martin Luther King even in Memphis in the first place? During the year of 1968, King had many transgressions in the city of Memphis. Martin Luther King was drawn to Memphis as his next project in the ongoing fight for civil rights. After watching 1,300 black sanitation workers march for better working conditions and higher pay in February of 1968, the sanitation workers of Memphis were fed up. They were expected to work the longest days doing one of society's most necessary but underappreciated jobs for meager wages, rain, shine, sleet, or snow. The city was only paying the workers 65 cents an hour, and this left many workers having to resort to welfare programs and food stamps. The need to strike gained traction and momentum when a couple of weeks before the strike, two workers named E. Cole Cole and Robert Walker were out working in the middle of a rainstorm and took shelter in the back of their truck. The truck ended up malfunctioning, causing the two men to be crushed to death. In addition to fair wages, the workers had been campaigning the city for better functioning equipment. These people were out here risking their lives and sanity on a daily basis. This was the least that they could do. Then to add the ultimate insult to injury, the city refused to offer any kind of compensation to the families of the deceased workers. So we have a city that refuses to adequately pay some of its most important workers. And when these workers die on the job, they refuse to admit fault and will turn a blind eye. Sounds protest worthy to me. This was newer territory for Martin Luther King. See, up until this point, the civil rights movement had been focusing mainly on racial equity issues. But realizing the importance and intersectionality of these issues, they chose to take on the challenge and take action. The protest started with several hundred people participating in a peaceful sit-in. The peacefulness of this protest ended when police decided to tear gas the protesters. Martin Luther King was then asked by Reverend James Lawson to come and assist with the efforts, which King gladly obliged, citing the fact that he was in the midst of building his Poor People's Campaign, a movement he was building to advocate for America's marginalized. On March 18, 1968, Martin Luther King gave a speech titled, All Labor Has Dignity, to a crowd of over 25,000 people. And the words he spoke in this magnificently worded and poignant speech resonate with a lot of the labor debates that we have today in 2023. He said, quote, You are demanding that this city will respect the dignity of labor. So often we overlook the work and the significance of those who are not in professional jobs, of those who are not in the so-called big jobs. But let me say to you tonight 
that whenever you are engaged in work that serves humanity and is for the building of humanity, it has dignity and it has worth. One day, our society must come to see this. One day, our society will come to respect the sanitation worker if it is to survive. For the person who picks up our garbage in the final analysis is as significant as the physician. For if he doesn't do his job, diseases are rampant. All labor has dignity. Unquote. Now, that excerpt of that speech is very relevant to everything we're experiencing today in America when we're talking about labor shortages, increasing the minimum wage and things of that nature. Martin Luther King was way ahead of his time. King went on to speak on how the workers were crossing the intersection between civil rights, workers' rights, and human rights. He went on to encourage the workers to enforce a full-on labor stoppage if their demands were not met. And when his speech was over, he told the people that he would be back in Memphis at the end of the month of March to lead a mass march. On March 28th, he kept his promise and returned to Memphis to lead the workers' march with the help of Reverend Lawson. Things were going well with the peaceful protests until an outside group of agitators interfered and a black teenager ended up being killed. And many of King's critics and detractors blamed him for this death. It has been reported that in its final days, Martin Luther King Jr. was a very depressed man. The death threats came constantly and quickly. He was no stranger to people either threatening to or actually attempting to end his life. There was actually an assassination attempt on Martin Luther King a decade before he was killed. On September 20th, 1958, King was at a book signing at Bloomstein's department store in Harlem, New York, promoting his book, Strides Towards Freedom, which told the story of Rosa Parks' arrest and the subsequent boycott. At 3.30 p.m., as he autographed a copy of his book, Isola Curry, a mentally unstable woman, stabbed him in the chest with a letter opener. King remained awake and alert, sitting in his chair, as several witnesses of the stabbing attended to him. There was discussion about pulling out the letter opener, but they decided to leave the blade in place until he arrived at the hospital, which was a move that ended up saving his life. They were able to remove the letter opener, and King remained in the hospital for a couple of weeks because he ended up contracting pneumonia as well. There was also a bomb threat against King's plane before he flew to Memphis for what would be the last time he would ever get on a plane. On April 3, 1968, Martin Luther King boarded Eastern Airlines Flight 381 from Atlanta to Memphis. A bomb threat had been called in against the flight, and the captain announced that the flight would be delayed. The entire baggage hold was searched, and nothing was found. Just another regular day of travel for Martin Luther King. So between bomb threats, assassination attempts, constant surveillance by the FBI, it is safe to say that Martin Luther King Jr. knew that his time was coming. And this further was evidenced by the phrasing and the emotion and the wording that he used in the final speech that he ever gave titled, I've Been to the Mountaintop. At this point, King had a lot to offer to the people of Memphis who were looking for a reason to keep fighting. He had a lot of experience with fighting oppressive systems and fighting against the odds. 
He was experienced with the police dogs, the police brutality, the Birmingham church bombing, all the marches, all the speeches he had given. He was the perfect person to instill hope and wisdom to the fighting people of Memphis. He had the support of the workers, the clergy, and the students of the city, and a massive crowd of people showed out to hear him speak that night. The speech was given on April 3rd at the Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee, and it was largely regarding the Memphis sanitation strike, but King spoke on many, many things and alluded to some very troubling things as well. It was perhaps the most personal and emotional speech he had ever given. King called for unity, economic actions, boycotts, and nonviolent protest while challenging the United States to live up to its ideals. Outside was a torrential, stormy downpour, and the feeling of that storm echoed throughout King's words. He wove through his speech without any notes, and some could tell that he looked as if he was hurried, sleep-deprived, like something was amiss, something was off. He went on throughout the speech, casting referendums in doubt. He said unless the government moved swiftly to alleviate the poverty of African Americans, the nation was doomed. He implored the workers and people of Memphis to keep fighting, to make sure that the fight that they fought would set an example for the rest of the nation and the world. In the speech, he told the story of that 1958 stabbing, saying that had he had so much as sneezed with that letter opener inside of him, he would have died because it would have hit an artery. And he said that this was symbolic as he was not meant to die that day because he would not have been here for all that they accomplished in the civil rights movement. In this speech, he discusses the possibility of an untimely death and his own mortality. He was not ignorant to the whispers around him, the people plotting in the shadows to take him out of this world once and for all. The way he talked and looked that night, some would assume he was having an internal panic. He seemed to be coming to terms with his own death in real time in this speech. He used the metaphor of a mountaintop to symbolize the treacherous and steep climb that we as people had to make to get to true salvation, true happiness, and prosperity in this country. It was like him looking into a crystal ball and seeing his own future. This was Martin Luther King's final speech. He talked for a total of 43 minutes, and afterwards, he looked exhausted, as if he had gave his final bit of life for this speech. There were tears in his eyes. He collapsed in his chair near the podium, and the crowd gave a raucous standing ovation. A minister named Bill Kyle, who knew King and his oratory very well, said, I've never heard the intensity or the passion or the trauma in his voice and how he was delivering it and he kept getting stronger and stronger. He would add that King seemed to be preparing for his death by purging publicly, purging the fear. He had to get rid of it. He had to let all that go. It's crazy to think that Martin Luther King Jr. was accepting his death on stage in front of everyone, and there was no way for us or the people watching to really know. A publicly private moment. After speeches, Martin Luther King would typically leave swiftly as to not be rushed by the crowd. But this night, he stuck around for a bit. He talked. He hugged. He just didn't want to leave. Until next time. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. 
if I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country. Maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. So just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. anybody I would like to live a long life longevity has its place but I'm not concerned about that now I just want to do God's will and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land I may not get there with you but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Yo, if you like this episode, you know what to do. Leave a rating and review on whatever platform you're listening to. We just hit 40,000 followers on Instagram and 1,000 subscribers on YouTube. Let's keep climbing. I truly appreciate all the support. Any social links can be found in the description below.